Yeah. So how long do you guys usually go? Uh, the last one we did like uh, about an hour and a half of recording, I think. And yeah, then, cool. Basically uh, until we shut up. Yeah. Cool. Welcome to AT Banter, the podcast where we discuss anything and everything regarding the world of assistive technology. With our hosts, Steve Barkley, Robino, and Ryan Flurry. Now, let's banter. Well, welcome everybody to yet another episode of AT Banter. Um, I'm Rob Minot, and today I am joined by Steve Barkley. Hello there. And Ryan Flurry. Hi. And we also have a very special guest with us, but I'm not going to tell you who it is quite yet, because I'm going to let Steve do that, because he... You don't know his name, do you? <laughs> I do know his name. That is a, that's an outrageous. You're just, you're just blanking comment. on it, aren't you? I'm not blanking. There is no blanking. I do happening. that all the time. I totally nope. blank on names. No, I know. It, I know it's Adam. We go way back, me and Adam. Yeah, we went to college together. But that's a whole different story. Really? Yep. Yeah, we were we were dorm mates. Oh, the craziness we got into. Hijinks. Hijinks. The unfortunate thing is, I lived at home in university. <laughs> I lived in his basement. <laughs> good times, good times. It was good times. <laughs> All right, so we have uh, with us today our special guest star, uh, Adam Wilton from the Provincial Resource Center for the Visually Impaired. Great, thanks for having me here. We are happy to have you. You are our first guest. Really? Absolutely. That's true. You wow. are our first guest. You're I... the first non-Aroga-ite. That's right. Ooh. And he's going to be here until he gets out of the ropes. Which could take a while. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> no, but there's still duct tape after the ropes. <laughs> I'll chew through that in short order. I think. So, right. <laughs> I'm industrious that way. What are we going to talk about today? We, we should talk about Braille and Braille literacy. Hmm. Wow, that that that's perfect. Because I feel like our guest could know something about that. I think he does. Wow, it's like we plan these things. <laughs> I know, right? Yes, I've heard I've heard Adam talk quite passionately about Braille literacy. So when uh, we decided to do the topic, he seemed like the natural guy to come in and uh, advocate. Well, I'm happy. That, seriously, how long do you guys have again? Because this could go on forever. <laughs> um, I'm happy to talk about Braille. Um, you know, it. Uh, just to give you a bit of background on where I'm from, um, I'm the manager of the Provincial Resource Center for the Visually Impaired, and so we do a lot of the Braille production uh, for students around the province, uh, textbooks, provincial exams, uh, novels. Uh, we even do sheet music, uh, uh, Braille music. Nice. In, uh, in sheet form, if requested. So a lot of Braille passes through our hands on any, uh, well, actually, a lot of both either passes through or is produced by us on any given day, week, month. Excellent. Well, maybe we should back up a little bit and talk a little bit about what Braille actually is for anybody who might be listening and is unfamiliar with Braille. Absolutely. So uh, Braille is a tactile code of language. Now, whether that's English or French or Mandarin, uh, you have a tactile representation. Uh, and in the case of Braille, it's a, a two by three matrix. Uh, and the Different dots, course, the different dots in their orientation correspond to different letters of the alphabet. Or um, in the case, uh, Braille is somewhat well. Actually, Braille is very interesting in that it is both an alphabetic, logographic, and syllabic code all at once. 
So alphabetic, we're all familiar with A, B, C, D, E. Um, well, everybody except for I am. <laughs> yeah, he loses ZYX, W, V. <laughs> he only speaks computer, that's it. Oh, all right. And then, of course, it's uh, uh, Braille, the Braille code is uh, contracted to save space and to make reading more efficient with the hands. And so you've also got um, syllabic uh, contractions, let's say, for CH or ST. Uh, and then you've also, from a logographic perspective, you've got whole words. Uh, so the words and of, for, the, and width are all represented by individual symbols uh, in Braille. So it's really uh, quite an elegant code, uh, and there's a pattern and a rhythm to it. Uh, and uh, just gen so generally speaking, that's, uh, that's, that's the code. And if I could say, Steve, because this actually did come up this morning. I was at the bank. Someone asked me what I did. And I told them, and they said, oh, how long did it take you to learn that language? <laughs> and uh, I've, over the years, you know, got kind of a little, a little bit of an elevator speech going there. Where it's, I've heard it. Yes. It's <laughs> not a language. It's a tactile representation of, of our language. Um, and so differs in that sense from, uh, let's say, American Sign Language, which we get, we get confused with quite, quite often. Understood. I will not call it a language as long no. as you're here to hear me. Thank you. Thank you. Not, not as soon as you're out the door, though. I not, <laughs> not a language. Alrighty. So what, um, I'm pitching you softballs here, but uh, what would you say is the importance of Braille? Why is, why is Braille important? Well, I think you have to turn that question on its head. Uh, would, we, would we ever ask the question, why, why is print important for students who are typically sighted? Uh, and my answer to that, you know, well, my response to that is, is always, you know, uh, Braille is um, one of many ways that we have to uh, represent oral language in, in, in written or embossed format. Um, you know, if, if you don't have a means of representing thoughts and ideas and facts, uh, anything other than an oral language, you basically get a generational game of telephone happening where <laughs> where messages change as time goes on so just generally speaking braille is important because everyone whether they're typically sighted or have a visual impairment needs a way of representing thoughts ideas feelings histories uh and braille provides that in, in an accessible format i've noticed that um over the years in, in the time that i've worked in this industry there seem to be ebbs and flows in um, how much emphasis is put on um, Braille teaching and Braille instruction. Um, and I know when I was first starting out in the industry, there, was, there were a lot of people out there who were really de-emphasizing Braille uh, with the idea that um, there were going to be all kinds of electronic uh, note takers with speech output mm. that blind people would be able to use and they wouldn't need to use Braille anymore. Well, it's interesting you mention that because uh, every once in a while, uh, a, a popular news outlet will put uh, a news article out, you know, is Braille dead? question mark you yes. know really these these doom and gloom articles and quite frankly uh for the most part uh things are uh the the, the de braille has been called prematurely dead seeming uh, every few years 
And then, of course, everyone on my Facebook who knows I have anything to do with visual impairment will send me this, uh, send me this link and said, oh my goodness, Adam, is Braille dead? And in fact, I believe the opposite. I believe the technology has brought Braille into the 21st century and has, and has changed and, and, and added to the ways in which it can be used. Um, I know that's a whole separate issue that we'll probably get to later in the podcast. But, um, you, you know, I, I don't feel like, uh, uh, I feel like many of those, uh, those stories emphasizing, emphasizing technology over Braille, it's a false dichotomy. The two exist, the two exist symbiotically now. Absolutely. Uh, well, and yeah. I think too, I'm sorry, Steve, I think too that, you know, you need to kind of back up a little bit and define what literacy is. You know, literacy is the ability to read and write. And listening to an audiobook isn't reading. Mm-hmm. Having that tactile representation of the language and being able to read that through your fingertips makes you literate. I agree. I agree. And, you know, it's interesting because there, there, there's been you know, talk in our professional community, and by that I mean, you know, the teachers of students with visual impairments in North America, you know, around that exact question. You know, what constitutes literacy? And if a student is relying 100% on audio input, excuse me, is that student literate in the traditional sense? Um, And I would argue that listening is part of literacy, but it's by no means the whole story Um, because you do need a means of representing oral language uh, in written or tactile or, you know, another form other than just what you're hearing. You know, there's a reason why we all are essentially, we, we innately get to understand oral language, but learning to read takes years of specialist teaching. Um, and by specialist, I mean teachers who go to teacher's college, get trained, uh, and, uh, and are then, are then professionally ready to, uh, teach children to read. Reading doesn't come innately to us. I've, um, I've seen a number of cases in the past where, um, parents have been told that their child is not going to be given Braille instruction because of all the availability of audio material. Mm. And I find that uh, it's it's really interesting that a teacher would try and do that uh, to a kid who's, who's developing literacy because you would never, ever uh, have a teacher tell a parent that, okay, we're going to remove the pen and paper from the classroom mm-hmm. and we are going to teach your, your child uh, completely via television. It, right. it just wouldn't happen. No, you're right. You're right. And, you know, uh, just on a, on a personal note at, at, uh, you know, our mandate at PRCVI exists so that that choice never has to be made. Um, you know, our, our, our Braille production mandate, uh, uh, you know, clearly, clearly lays out that if, if there's a, if, if we get a request for a particular textbook or a particular material, um, that we're going to do everything we can to produce that. Um, and so the, it's, in many cases, it's not an availability issue. It could be just as you pointed to, Steve, it could be, um, a perception issue. Uh, there might be some hesitation on the part of parents to introduce Braille because there, there might be a perception that, um, using technology or an exclusively auditory input might be more consistent with what peers are doing. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, those peers are also learning to you learn to read. Right. Um, so and I, I've seen, you know, I've interacted with a lot of, uh, a lot of kids in the school system over the years as well. And, and, uh, 
Um, you know, when, when I was doing the uh, summer camps with the, uh, over on Bowen Island for the Canadian National Institute of the Blind and, and Special Education Technology, BC, I got to, to meet an awful lot of uh, mm. kids, and, and many of them were low vision. Uh, many of them were blind. Some of them were Braille literate and some were not. And one thing that I really noticed when we started interacting through social media, you know, back in the day, it was things like MSN chat and, and so forth. Um, the kids who learned Braille could spell. Right, exactly. And, you know, we've, uh, this is something that I feel needs a lot more research in our field in terms of uh, if we do have this distinction between those who are uh, Braille literate versus those who maybe rely more on auditory input. Because if you think about it just intuitively, if you have access to the written word, you can break those words down. And you And the other piece to it is you've got, You've got access to high quality input. I mean, I one of the things that that I often remark on is that if let's say for example someone were to take a transcript of our conversation right now, we would not sound like the best users of English with all the ums and the ahs and the pauses and the slur and the slurred speech. Well, I am like, functionally illiterate. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's just it. The 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 speech input is not the best model for language. But having access to the written word is. And so if you have that as your template for language, well, then you're going to be able to you're going to be able to write all and produce that language. Well, um, and I think, too, that, you know, being able to see the written word and the context the words are written in is a huge differentiator between the auditory listening to a screen reader read to you versus being able to read it through your fingers. You know, words like two, two, and two, mm -hmm. there, there, and there. Yep. Screen readers, they all sound the same. Well, the other thing that oh, I, that jumps out at me when I think of along those lines as well are um, poetry. You know, poetry, the, 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 how poetry is displayed on the page often conveys something about the poem or the poet's mindset at the time. And that, uh, you know, that's lost with auditory only. The other thing I think of is, you know, the Braille Authority of North America puts invests countless hours in in developing and maintaining um, formatting guides for the Braille code, and you know the, no one's doing that because it's fun. They're doing it because well, it is actually kind of fun. But <laughs> that's beside the point. Uh, it is actually kind of fun. But um, they're doing that because there is just a fundamental need to make sure that anything that is represented in print can also be represented in Braille uh, and represented well. And in fact, the the switch to the uh, Unified English Braille Code, uh, of which Canada has ratified and most of the English-speaking world, or at least members of the International Council on English Braille have uh, ratified, uh, draws Braille into, into um, uh, closer closer correspondence with print. So essentially now the, the rule is how it is in print is how it is in Braille. Um, you know, if there's spaces or, or different kind of structural pieces, um, there's greater correspondence between the two. Just recognizing purely from an accessibility standpoint, but there are other reasons as well, but just from an accessibility standpoint, uh, what, you, what appears in Braille also appears the same, sorry, what appears in print also appears the same way in Braille. And auditory only, you're, while it can be, auditory input is very valuable for many students. And, you know, I have some friends who are blind who are just avid consumers of audiobooks. 
uh, I'm an avid consumer of audiobooks. Oh, me too. Yep. Yeah. Um, but when I talk to those friends, uh, none of them regret learning Braille. None of them regret the time that it took. Because even though they might use, quote unquote, more efficient technolo technological solutions now, the, the reason that the way they got to that point was by being literate and having those skills early on. I think there comes a bit of independence when you have that Braille skill as well. You know, being totally blind myself, I'm not a strong Braille user, but relying on technology to label things around the house is only fine as long as the batteries are charged and working. The batteries die, you don't have any batteries, I fall back to Braille. Right. I use Braille to label my Blu-rays, my vinyl LPs. Braille lasts. Sure, absolutely. Well, sure, and I mean, going back to the audiobook, talking about audiobooks, I mean, it's a, you know, even even as a sighted person or, you know, a sighty, as Ryan likes to call me. Um, <laughs> Retinal chauvinist. I've heard that one. That's <laughs> the one that I, yes. I got that from John Lyon, who used to work at the CNIB, and I have no idea if he coined it or not, but I love it. Which one's that? Retinal chauvinist. Retinal chauvinist. Yeah, right. That's pretty that awesome. <laughs> but no, it's, it's a very different experience. Like, listening to an audiobook is a very different experience than reading that same book. Mm -hmm. um, when you're reading a book, it's you're much more connected to it. It's a much more interactive experience than having something literally read to you. It's it's just different. Talking about those differences, something that's occupying a lot of our thoughts these days at uh, PRCVI is this uh, idea of accessible math and higher level math, and how you know uh, auditory only is uh, is not able to. Uh, you're not able to uh, represent those things, uh, that the, the, the math equations, spati yeah, spatial equations, things like that. Um, and so we're we're now thinking about, you know, what what skills are our, do our secondary school students need going into post secondary uh, in terms of uh, those accessible maths and and maybe some of the codes or markup languages they might need to be familiar with moving forward. Um, but again, that I think that also speaks to that the, the that notion that auditory only isn't isn't the answer for many of our learners. Well, math wasn't a solution for me as a learner either. So <laughs> <laughs> just don't do math, kids. Just don't do math. <laughs> All right. So I'd like to kind of take a step back in time here and talk about where Braille came from. Um, so I've got an article in front of me, which I've uh, pulled out of Wikipedia. It was linked to the Wikipedia article on, on Braille and the origins of Braille. And Braille was an improvement on night writing. Uh, and this dates back to the Napoleonic Wars uh, back in 1820. Uh, night writing, or sonography, uh, was a system of code that used symbols of 12 dots arranged as two columns of six dots embossed on a square of paperboard. And it was uh, it, it was so that soldiers could communicate silently and without light at night, because obviously you put on a light and they know where to start <laughs> shooting. Um, so they used to pass messages um, using these, uh, these squares. Uh, Louis Braille, uh, a few years later... Um, decided to improve on that code and Louis was a, a blind uh, person he, mm -hmm. he'd lost his sight as, Very a, young. as a child yeah and uh, he uh, he changed the uh, the code around into a six dot system instead of this uh, six by six matrix he, he made it much much more efficient so the first users of Braille were uh, not primarily blind users they were soldiers on the battlefield mm -hmm. and uh, 
So just goes to show uh, anybody can learn Braille, even if they're carrying a gun. So, so yeah. I guess that means that the very first Braille word was probably duck. <laughs> That's probably true. I bet they had a contraction for that. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm sure they're sure. I'm sure they did. So, and then, of course, you know, Braille went from there and into kind of more of the academic educational realm. Uh, and what's what's interesting is that the if you look at the Braille code right now, there are a few like really interesting little vestiges of the original purpose for for Braille reading and writing still kind of embedded in the code, much like we have old DNA in our DNA. Braille has some vests, so for example, some vestiges stuck behind. Um, one of the ones that when I was first learning um, learning the code, uh, I remarked you know, like I couldn't figure out why some high frequency words weren't contracted and yet lord was or father and mother and and thyself and spirit and of course that's a throwback to the first priority for learning braille at least at the specialized school level was so that students could read the bible interesting and so that then students could read the bible and uh uh they could do that uh, in almost like a, 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 a public forum, so then that would that would generate donations for the school. And how high would that pile be? Have you brailed the Bible? Oh my goodness! <laughs> I well, I once heard. I, I don't have an exact number, but I I know the King the King James version of the Bible can take up a fairly size like a, a room of ample ample volume. Wow! Yeah, I've yeah. I've been into a customer's uh, house where they had the. Uh, the entire Bible in Braille, and it was uh, it was two shelves that were probably I want to say about fifteen feet long. Oh, wow. I want to say I want to say between seventy and eighty volumes. That that number is standing out for me right now, but I, I might be wrong. But, yeah. Yeah, somebody can write in. Somebody's absolutely. somebody out there somebody has out there their Bible in Braille, and uh, <laughs> yes. they can tell us exactly how many books there are. Yeah. In uh, in hard copy, yeah. yeah. Excellent. So then, of course, Braille, you know, went on from there. And there's another interesting thing people might know is that Braille hasn't been the only tactile code that people who are blind or visually impaired have used uh, since, you know, since, as Steve mentioned, the 1820s onwards. Um, there were several codes uh, in uh, sometimes in competition with one another. Uh, and it was really only in the uh, around the, the 1920s, early 30s that uh, uh English Braille American Edition became the standard Braille code for Canada and the United States. Up until then, there were several uh, different codes. Um, there was, uh, you know, a raised line code. Uh, New York Point was another code. Uh, and so, interestingly, some some individuals uh, who are blind or visually impaired needed to needed to learn two or three codes uh, in order to be able to read materials that were being that were going back and forth. Um, between communities uh, around the turn of the last century. This is probably a good time as well to mention um, the development of UEB. Right. Because yeah. even in English uh, Braille, there were multiple sure. codes of English Braille. There was UK Braille. There was North American yeah, there was, uh, English Braille. There was Australian Braille. Yeah. There was yeah. There was, so there was what was called standard English Braille in the United in the United Kingdom. And there was English Braille, as I mentioned before, English Braille American Edition in uh, Canada and in the United States. And uh, these codes had rule differences, um, character differences. Uh, and so if a student was, had a textbook from the UK put in front of them 20 years ago, 
it wouldn't have been in the same code as uh, as they might be accustomed to if they lived in the United States or Canada. Uh, and so there's been a movement over the last 10, 15 years uh, to unify the codes. And so that if PRCVI were to produce a textbook, it would be just as intelligible to a student in Nigeria than it would be to a student in Cranbrook. Um, and so it's been a major development, uh, and it's something that uh, our province has been uh, spending a significant amount of time and resources updating our library. Um, at PRCVI, we've got, we're up until uh, grade 8 right now. We've got all of, our, all of our materials and things up until the uh, grade 8, and then we've got some students who are still using English Braille American Edition in the high school years, but... Uh, uh, we're moving towards full UEB implementation, but it's 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 uh, it's been a real uh, uh, it's been a great process, I think, because you know you now rather than having separate codes, I should also mention just for anyone who's not aware that there was a special code for mathematics and science notation prior to this move, and so now it's unified on the the literary code and the mathematics code are, are united under one set of rules and, and one set of uh, formats, and. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's but it's an on, it's an ongoing process, uh, and different different places on different places in the uh, across the globe are further along. Um, the uh, Australia and New Zealand uh, sometimes laugh at at some of the challenges that we face because, of course, they've been using UEB for God ten years or more. And why why is it their code that the rest of us adopted? Well, it's interesting because the first. Uh, the first moves toward unification were actually from uh, two Americans, Abraham Nemeth and, and uh, 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 Tim Cramner. And they originally put a, a, a paper forward, I believe, in the early 90s. I could be wrong on that, but I believe it was the early 90s. Um, and so this issue of unifying the codes has really kind of ping-ponged around across the English-speaking world. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the preconditions were in Australia and New Zealand to make it just such an, a seamless switch all those years ago. Um, but it's certainly something that, uh, that in Canada we've, we've been following a somewhat gradual approach, although different provinces in terms of the kindergarten to grade 12, grade 12 education system, um, certain provinces uh, are on different timelines. Right. And, like, what are the major differences? Because my understanding is there's only seven or eight contractions that are different. Uh, well, that's, that's true. Um, there's, there's only a handful. There, right, there's a, that's in terms of the changes to the literary code. Right. So the literary code changes are uh, ones that are, I'm going to say, relatively straightforward. And I say relatively because there's also some punctuation changes, um, some formatting changes. Uh, whereas in the past, I'll give you an example, whereas in the past you weren't able to indicate uh, whether something was bold, underlined, or italicized, now the United, the, the United unified. <laughs> unified, thank you, <laughs> the United Code, <laughs> the Unified Code um, allows those distinctions to be made. Again, keeping along those lines of whatever appears in print, Shows up in Braille. Comes up in Braille. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So the changes to the, liter the literary code are fairly straightforward. It's the changes to the technical code that I think take more work. Mm -hmm. um, because, again, you, we're, we're moving from having two separate codes to, to, to one. And so while, while there are some fairly straightforward changes, uh, we're finding just in our professional community that it's the changes to the technical code that take more time and, um, uh, and effort to, to become fluent in. Right. Okay. Yeah.
Um, I should mention as well that uh, for uh, any uh, sighted people who are interested, uh, Aroga has on our website a free uh, UEB Braille chart. Um, we uh, are uh, very thankful to uh, Kay Holbrook at the University of British Columbia and her uh, students who she probably made slave away at it. Um, and uh, um, you can download that for free. Uh, it uh, is downloadable as a PDF. Uh, it's designed to print out on 11 by 17 paper, although you can print it out smaller if you want. I should, I should also say that Aroga chart is ubiquitous. It's, it's everywhere. So thank you. Thank you for putting that out. It's a great resource to have, especially because some days, you know, for, for someone like myself who was trained in the quote-unquote old code in English Braille American Edition, it's sometimes good to have a reference at hand. Yeah, I always used to use the uh, the one that Duxbury produced. Yeah. Um, that was my, my go-to uh, uh, Braille chart before uh, UEB came into play. Mm -hmm. So when, uh, when it did, I... Uh, you know, I, I really wanted a resource like that. Right. And, uh, right. and I think uh, the, the way it's all been laid out is, uh, is really oh, yeah. quite excellent. Yes. No, for, for, from a reference point of view, absolutely. So if you've had a student going through, you know, K to grade 8, mm -hmm. would you introduce UEB at that point, even though they've been using the standard Braille code up till then? Well, uh, let me backtrack and say that there are students in our province now who are in the grade four to five range for whom UEB is their native code. Okay. They've never used anything else. Um, and that's because their, their, their kindergarten entrance corresponded with our implementation process. Okay. Uh, there are, now, there are some students now who are in the kind of early middle school range, uh, or sorry, grade uh, seven and eight, who are uh, transitioning between the codes right now. Okay. Uh, and then we have high school students who uh, are still using the old code exclusively because they're either involved in high stakes testing or they're involved in entrance exams or they're involved in, um, you know, really, really kind of intense uh, um, transition oriented uh, activities where we wouldn't want them to be at a disadvantage because they were learning a new code or they were having to use a new code that uh, wasn't what they had learned. Right. Um, so, but, but as I said, as, as time goes on and as our implementation continues, those cohort effects, those, the, as those cohorts move through, mm -hmm. um, we're, we're moving to full uh, UEB implementation because um, you know, UEB was uh, ratified in Canada in 2010. Uh, and then we've just been working a lot on the implementation path since then. Um, and, you know, different jurisdictions have different uh, contextual reasons for why, you know, the UEB transition didn't take place over maybe a, a few years. Um, uh, for example, you know, in British Columbia, uh, we have, um, well, up until a few weeks ago, actually, we had um, subject-specific uh, um, provincial exams. And so there was there we, we wouldn't want any of our students writing those exams to be at a disadvantage because right. they were writing them in a code that was new to them. Right. And so there's different contextual factors, but by and large, uh, uh, the goal nationally from coast to coast to coast uh, is full UEV implementation. Great. We we talked a little bit about um, why parents might be reluctant to have their kids learn Braille. Mm -hmm. In in your opinion, who should be learning Braille? Like what's what's the appropriate audience to learn Braille? You know, it's interesting. Um, uh, and I'm not going to say this because the originator of the process was my supervisor, but you mentioned Dr. K. Holbrook, and I know what Dr. K. Holbrook would say. She would say that it really depends on 
the uh, the assessment data that you that 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 you get from working with a student. And so, what we would do as teachers would be something called a learning media assessment, and that's a very systematic process that we would go through to determine what the most efficient and effective literacy medium would be for that student. Uh, for some students, it's print. For some students, it's large print. For some students, it's a combination of print and Braille, so a dual media learner, we would call them. Or for some students, it's, it's, uh, it's full-time Braille. It's very difficult for me to sit here and put a particular, um, you know, a student must have a certain visual acuity to read Braille. That's not the case at all. It, it depends more on uh, it depends more on how the student's functioning in the classroom, how they're using their vision or not using their vision, um, and it, it really depends on the on the outcomes of assessment. Uh, and that's that's why it's so important to connect with a qualified teacher of students with visual impairments, so that they can conduct these assessments and provide that expertise and that consultation uh, in terms of. Uh, um, uh, the decision of whether a student will read print braille or both. I can, uh, in my work as a teacher, um, I've had students who have been exclusive braille readers, uh, full-time braille readers. I've also had students who have read print and braille. Um, so these would be students who perhaps their vision, um, their vision might be deteriorating over time, or these are students for whom they might have low vision to the point where uh, reading a book visually might be uncomfortable. And so they would be a Braille reader, but then let's say if they wanted to access a, uh, a spatial math equation, well, then that might be enlarged or put under a closed-circuit television. So I think there's, um, there's, no, there's no hard and fast rule. There's no threshold of who would read Braille and who wouldn't read Braille. It really, it really depends on the individual, and it depends on, on, uh, on, on knowledgeable assessment of that student. I know that's a really dry technical answer, but it's the well, it's one... A, it's a good answer, though. Yeah, I, you know, the, I've, I've always, uh, when I've been talking to parents, I've always kind of used the rule of thumb that if, if their kid is going to go beyond four to six times magnification, that they might want to consider Braille as a means to efficiency in reading. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm going to have to add a, a proviso on there that they should be properly assessed by a teacher of the visually impaired. Absolutely. Because that's something I haven't been saying, and I probably should be. Absolutely, no. It, it, that that does need uh, that does need to be there because you know there's a series of there's a series of assessments that as teachers of the visually impaired we would do. Uh, so I got a little bit ahead of myself. First, we'd have, we would do a functional vision assessment, and that would get a, you know get a sense of okay, taking that student's medical reports, their ophthalmology reports, their optometry reports, looking at what those reports say, but then trying to figure out exactly how those results play out in the real world. How does it function in a classroom? Because if you have numbers on a page, that doesn't necessarily tell you how the student uses their vision on a day-by-day, hour-by-hour basis. Um, and so you would have a, so a functional vision assessment data, which would then feed into a learning media assessment. And the learning media assessment, I should also say, even though I've emphasized the teacher of students with visual impairments here, it's a team approach as well. You know, there's a team that works on behalf of students. Um, and so there's a, it's a collaborative process uh, across uh, that involves parents, uh, classroom teachers, special education teachers, educational assistants, uh, and of course, you know, the, 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 the linchpin there being the teacher of students with visual impairments. But yeah, can't emphasize that, uh, that assessment piece enough. Absolutely. So um, next question on best practices. When, when would it be most appropriate to start introducing Braille? Is it at the earliest possible I am going to be 100% unequivocal here, early as possible. Um, you know, the uh, one thing, uh, we worked on an early literacy initiative 
actually when I first moved to BC seven years ago now. Whoa. <laughs> I think that's the first time I've said that out loud. <laughs> time flies when you're having fun. Time flies, does fly. Wow. You know, Ontario is just a, a vague memory at this point. Although with this heat, I'm getting some flashbacks. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we, we were running this early literacy initiative and our approach there, uh, we had a, a, a literacy kit that had both Braille and large print um, or low vision tools in it. And our approach there was really, um, you know, it, having more tools in a child's toolkit is preferable to having few tools. Um, and so if, if Braille or print or a combination of both is a tool moving forward, and then perhaps as the child moves into school, it becomes evident that, you know, they can use print effectively and they might, we might emphasize those tools uh, more, more so or over the, the, the Braille tools. Um, but by and large, I think uh, early as possible, um, you know, we think of... Uh, when we think of how much literacy knowledge our students who are typically sighted come to school with, you know, many of them come with being able to, excuse me, spell their name, the alphabet, or even if they don't have that, they've been seeing print everywhere. You know, they know to recognize McDonald's because of the, the arches, or they, they know to recognize, um, they know to recognize a dog because they see, they've seen many different types of dogs and have a good, good concept of dog. Um, and so early Braille for our students is so important because it just, it speaks to that readiness issue that students who are blind or visually impaired come to school ready, ready to learn and ready to learn alongside their sighted peers. And speaking, speaking of that, uh, I noticed, uh, I'm not sure if I, I showed you, Steve, but in doing a little bit of research for, for some of our upcoming shows, uh, I did come across that um, kit that's uh, it's like they're like large Lego pieces that yeah. that show them tiles. Yeah, that yeah. that yeah that that you can use to build yeah um, braille lettering, and you know obviously geared towards a, a fairly young age too. Mm -hmm. Right. So that that was actually my next question is how when you're introducing braille to a student for the first time, how do you generally go about that? Well, you know it, that's a great question because there's a number of different ways to do it. So I'm just going to relay the strategies that I've that I've used personally as a teacher of students with visual impairments. Um, but this is, the, the, there's no one way here. Um, I think the, 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 the key thing to keep in mind is just getting those hands on the Braille. That's the, the most important piece. You know, if I'm reading a storybook with a child and they might be sitting next to me or sitting in front of me and, and my hands are, are, I mean, I'm not reading the, the Braille with my hands. I'm, I might be reading the print that, that com comes along in the book. But the most important thing is that child, or that young child has their hands on the Braille and is starting to make the connection. They, they're not reading the wor word for word, but they're starting to make the connection that, hey, all of these bumps mean something. They carry meaning. That's why it's also important to have labels around the house. Um, you know, label, labeling things. While the child might not know that these, all of these bumps together say table, they start to get a sense that okay, I, I find these, I find these bumps everywhere. They must mean, they, they must mean something. They mu there must be some importance here. Like my mom and dad aren't staying up all night putting labels on things just for good times. <laughs> um, 
And so it, it really is about providing those environmental Braille experiences. Because when we think of environmental print for our students who are typically sighted, uh, that just happens incidentally. You, know, you can walk outside your house and read billboards and read signs and read buses. And, and uh, for our students who are blind or visually impaired, it's, it's important that they be as immersed as possible in a literacy environment that's accessible for them. And for our students who are who are totally blind or or who have profound low vision, uh, that that will more than likely be through Braille. Excellent. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's that um, I would emphasize the immersion piece there. Just that there's that that early Braille is just an all-encompassing uh, experience. You know, you might make um, uh, you might make cupcakes and make Braille le Braille letters out of cupcakes, or you know, with the, with the one cupcake being one dot. Um, you might, um, one of my favorite things along the cupcake in this, in the, in the same vein as cupcakes was just to have a, uh, two by three muffin pan with a bunch of tennis balls. And we would just talk about the dot, the, the dots, I mean, the letter R, what dot numbers do you have there? Oh, okay. And then working it through, um, combining that with, with just little fun activities that get the hands engaged. Um, I used to have a game, uh, that uh, my kindergarten students used to love called Magic Bag. Essentially what this was was a bag of beads and buttons and things, and I would give them an example, and they would have to reach in without looking and find the, the pair, the, the bead that matched it, or the bean that matched it, or something like that. But just little games to get the hands moving. Play-Doh cool. is great for that, too. Interesting. I tell you, Steve, I have become quite the Play-Doh aficionado <laughs> in my time. Can you make your own Play-Doh? I can. And I have an incredible <laughs> recipe, too. All right. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll get you to share your I recipe. I will share the, the, the Play-Doh recipe. Yes. Excellent. It is quite good. Because we need more toys around here. <laughs> we really do. I think maybe we should just spend an afternoon playing with Play-Doh. Yeah. Well, my slinky is lonely, so... So you're involved in something else, uh, which is pretty cool, and that is the uh, the Braille Challenge. Ah, yeah, the Braille Challenge. Yes. Yeah. Tell us about the Braille Challenge. Okay, so the Braille Challenge is an academic uh, a, an academic Braille reading and writing competition that takes place across Canada and the, and the United States. Uh, it's sponsored by the Braille Institute of America. Uh, students either write at um, regional challenges, so regional events, or they write one on one with their teacher of students with visual impairments. Uh, it's a set of five. Um, five, there are there are five events or challenges, and, and examples of those events. There's um, spelling, there's uh, reading comprehension, proofreading. Uh, some of the older students will do um, speed and accuracy, and that's where they're listening to a text and have to transcribe what they hear. Uh, there's also a tactile graphics challenge as well. Uh, and so, students, as I said, they compete uh, either regionally. Uh, or one-on-one, -on -one. and then the uh, the top-scoring students in North America uh, are invited to the National Braille Challenge, uh, which takes place every year in Los Angeles. And so this year, the National Challenge is on June 18th. So not too not too it's coming uh, up fast. Coming up fast, and I'm uh, I'm very proud to report that uh, Canada is will be represented this year by students from British Columbia. We have stu three students from British Columbia who participated at our, our regional Braille Challenge that we have in Vancouver every year at the University of British Columbia. Uh, and those three students uh, placed in the top 10 in their age categories and uh, will be, will be uh, traveling to Los Angeles fairly soon. So we wish That's them all awesome. the luck. Yeah. So, so what uh, what kind of odds is Vegas giving them for to uh, win this thing? <laughs> I don't know. I, 
we've got some really strong students. So I have to say, we've, we, we have students who have placed second and third, sometimes won their categories. Um, so I think the odds are pretty good. All right. So we should be betting on these kids is what you're saying. Well, officially, no. Down. Officially, no. But uh, if anyone's interested, the Braille Institute of, uh, of America, you will usually have a live webcast of at least the closing ceremonies. And so it's always very exciting for us to be able to get together and uh, and watch that and cheer on some of our, our British Columbia students um, who are down at the down at the Braille Challenge. And it's really just, you know, when we th there's obviously the competition piece is very important and kids I mean who doesn't like to take home a little bit of hardware but uh, it's also just the opportunity to get together with kids who read and write just like they do and to trade stories and you know talk about technology and what what others are using um, should also mention at British at the our British Columbia Regional Challenge this year we created an entirely different competition category for our students who might be using Braille in more foundational ways so students who are who might be using um, Braille as uh, you know to make lists or to uh, put labels on things, or who might be uh, not working at their academic at their academic level, but still who are Braille users. And so we've got those students joining us as well at the British Columbia Challenge. It was great to have them this year too, because it just it really rec it really shows the diversity of the diversity of the community of students who read Braille in the province. So when they're writing Braille in these challenges, are they using a slate stylus? Are they using a Perkins Brailler? Currently, the man, currently the rules state a uh, manual Perkins Braille writer. Mm -hmm. um, but I have heard that, uh, that there will be an option next year for um, students in the older competition categories to write using uh, electronic note takers. Oh, wow. Um, but that's something that, uh, that, that's in the experimental phase mm -hmm. at this point. Traditionally, uh, the students have produced hard copy Braille because, uh, one of the advantages of the Braille challenge, uh, specifically in British Columbia, is we have an incredible community of Braille transcribers. So professionals who are responsible for producing Braille. Uh, and we have, uh, anywhere between 10 and 15 Braille transcribers come every year to volunteer. And our students' materials are graded on the spot. Wow. And so that hard copy Braille is, is, is rushed upstairs, it's graded, and we're able to, uh, at our closing ceremonies on the day of, announce the winners of each category. That's awesome. Which is my favorite part of the day. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great time. But yeah, the Braille Challenge is, again, I'm a little bit biased because I am the regional coordinator of the, of the British Columbia Regional Braille Challenge, but it's, uh, it's a great day. And um, if uh, anyone listening is interested, has a student in mind, uh, uh, that uh, they think might like to participate. Um, registration is done through uh, uh, the students, uh, teacher of students with visual impairments. So all of the teachers of students with visual impairments in the province uh, get the registration form, and um, and uh, we'd love to love to see them. Alrighty. Um, so you you mentioned the Perkins Brailler there, and I think that's a good uh, good way to segue into uh, Braille technology. Right. Right. What's out there for Braille technology? Um, you know, I've, I've been involved with uh, Braille technology since I, since I started with Aroga 20, 25 years ago. Um, you know, back then uh, I was working with um, uh, things like an uh, Italian solenoid-driven uh, electronic refreshable Braille display that hooked up to Apple computers. Uh, I was working with the uh, VersaBraille from uh, Telesensory Systems, which... Uh, uh, used a cassette tape to load uh, load programs. Um, what else did we have back then? We had the uh, VersaBraille Braille printer. 
Um, was this around the Opticon? Was this this is, was around the time of the Opticon. Yeah, 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 I did a lot of repairs on Opticons. <laughs> that was a hugely popular device back then, yeah. and uh, and a and a really powerful device. Uh, for for those who don't know, the Opticon uh, had an array of pins, and it didn't actually display Braille. You had a little handheld camera that which you could run over top of print, and uh, typically print being uh, black text on a white background wherever there was black it would it would raise the pins on the on the array of pins and uh, wherever there was white it would uh, it would keep them down so you could actually feel the shapes of letters with them and uh, people learned to read very very efficiently with the with the Opticon to the point where I know a couple of people who actually uh, put themselves through law school reading all of their law books uh, strictly wow, with an Opticon and that's incredible. that's really quite an impressive uh, achievement and, and shows some real real hard-headed determination absolutely um, but uh, but Braille technology uh, really these days is primarily uh, using a, a bimorph system. It's a, a three-layer wafer uh, that you sit a pin on top of. And uh, when you apply voltage to one side of the wafer, it bends the wafer up. And when you apply voltage to the other side of the wafer, it bends the wafer down. So you have your dots up or your dots down sitting, sitting on top of that that little wafer. So for every Braille cell, in an electronic refreshable Braille, typically you, you've got eight cells. You use dot uh, seven and dot eight to, to show you things like the cursor position, for example. Um, uh, so you have to have eight of these little biomorphs driving these dots up and down. And there, there really is no uh, other consumer use for this technology. It's, it's strictly used for Braille, and as a result, it's only manufactured in small quantities, and it's extremely expensive. It's mm -hmm. like 100 bucks per, per Braille cell for your typical um, Braille display. Now, there's, there's all kinds of projects that are going on to try and make Braille more um, accessible by making it less expensive. Right. And uh, I actually did a search, and I found on um, the uh, DAISY uh, website, uh, DAISY is uh, uh, a uh, talking book standard, uh, but they had a list of different um, Braille technology that they, they had been able to dig out. And there's actually 63 different Braille technologies that I found. And some of them just sound uh, quite bizarre. Um, parallel actuation, mechanical, revolving belt, uh, some of them are just really difficult to understand because they don't really say what they are. Uh, EAP, multi-layer DEA, piezo, which is probably piezoelectric, uh, laser diode activation of a nanostructured polymer. That's my favorite. <laughs> that sounds like a great band name. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Ryan, make note of that All for right, the world's worst it. band. We could have the world's best name for the world's worst band. Uh, yeah, EAP, ferroelectric. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that's also a good band name. Actually, most of these would make good but Hydrogel Tactile Graphics. <laughs> I see a lot of punk bands starting. Uh, solenoids mounted on a scanner. Uh, or lyrics. If you're not going to use it as a band name, just right. there'll be lyrics. That's right. That says a love song all over it. Yeah. It's a ballad. Yeah, and some of them, some of them on the list just say available under NDA. So you've got to sign a non-disclosure agreement if you want to know anything about it. Oh, here's a good one: innovative wax actuation. Mm, that's wow. Kind of cool. Matrix of heat pixels transmits electro vibration stimulus ultra thin. 
I actually went to the website for that one because I wanted to see what it was. And it's, it's listed yeah, on this list as being a Japanese technology. But when I went to the website, it's actually a Finnish company. And they have no information whatsoever on their website. Just the fact that they're a company. That's it. No, no way to contact them. Nothing. Sounds a little suspicious. I suppose. Anyway, so there's lots and lots of uh, work being done to try and make Braille uh, more accessible and cheaper. Uh, RNIB has just recently come out with a device, and I've totally blanked on the name of the device, Ryan. Um, the little uh, book reader that they've just... Uh, the one CNIB is exclusive The one CNIB is the selling orb, in Canada. Or Braille? Or Orbit. 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 Is yeah. that correct? I think so. I think it might be Orbit, yeah. I heard uh, a blind uh, Braille reader, uh, I, I was at a show last week, and uh, he had had a chance to try it, and he was really, really enthused by this uh, by this device. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, I think, about a $400 mm-hmm. device. That's what it's, yeah, that, that's the, the marketing um, literature I've seen, yeah, somewhere in that range, which is, that's a um, great savings compared to... Oh, absolutely. What and else and, and if it there? gets Braille into people's hands and lets them, you know, read recreationally, yeah. um, more power to it. I hope it's absolutely. a hugely successful device. Absolutely. And, of course, uh, the other uh, technologies that are uh, predominant these days are uh, uh, Braille printers. There's lots and lots of Braille printers out on the market these days. Uh, you can get both single-sided and double-sided Braille printers. Um, for the work you do, uh, mm-hmm. I know you have double-sided uh, Braille printers in, in, in PRCVI, but mm-hmm. how, how much double-sided Braille do you actually produce? Is it None. primarily single? None. Yeah, yeah, we primarily produce single-side. Yeah. Yeah. And, and why did you make that decision? Um, do you know I'm not actually sure, Steve? I should have... Uh, I, I'm not entirely sure why that is the case. I know that it's worked into our policy, though. Um, and um, unfortunately, I think that uh, pre- pre- certainly predates my time there. Um, because I have seen materials over the years, when I worked in Ontario as well, that, that were in Interpoint. Um, but no, we, we don't produce an Interpoint. Interesting, because uh, my, my assumption has always been that it's more difficult for somebody to read Interpoint Braille because of the the valleys i guess that you would have on the from the braille on the opposite side well and the other piece as well is from an instru- see everything we do at PRCVI is informed from the pedagogical perspective as well like we have to think of how is this going to be taught how is this going to be used in the classroom um, and it's uh, it's much easier for the teacher of the visually impaired teacher of students with visual impairments rather to uh, follow along with what the students reading and to maybe address any any um, you know any braille reversals or any issues that they're having with their reading if it's printed um, just single side because of course interpoint braille is next to impossible to read visually right so as a as, as a teacher of students with visual impairments that would be actually be my preference because I would be able to kind of better assess where my student was having an issue uh, on the page if we were able to kind of pinpoint it together um, and then I could look and see, okay, well, what dot numbers are there? Is it is the student confusing a symbol because it's a mirror image of another? Um, it'd be much easier to diagnose that way. That's fair enough. Yeah, so that would be my teacher answer, but in terms of the, the official policy, uh, I'm not entirely certain. Okay. Um, other devices out there, uh, electronic refreshable Braille note takers. Um, there's a, a lot of them out there. Um, best known ones, at least for North America, are probably the uh, Braille Note from uh, HumanWare and the Braille Sense from uh, Hims. Um, 
There's also uh, things like the uh, six dot braille labeler that's out there uh, for uh, producing labels. Mm -hmm. uh, there is, of course, the ubiquitous and always about Perkins brailler <laughs> and yep. uh, the Perkins smart brailler. Bluetooth um, braille keyboards like the braille pen, Focus 14, Super Vario or the Vario Ultra. Right. And the one thing I think is important to, to note as well is that um, the the technology piece and the way that Braille intersects with technology isn't just for our kind of, you know, kids in university or students, you know, who, who are older. There's also technology like uh, like the Mountbatten, and you mentioned the Smart Brailler as well, Steve, that um, that are very, very useful with our students right from right from kindergarten, right from day one. Um, so this 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 notion that that uh, technology has really uh, improved and uh, improved braille to, uh, braille opportunities for braille usage uh, or increased opportunities it's true for, for for our students right through right along kindergarten grade twelve. Now, what do you think? It, it does does the new three uh, D printing technology have anything anything to lend to? Oh, absolutely. I think it opens up. I think it opens things up greatly. Uh, we've started 3D printing a few things here and there at PRCVI to add to our collection because I should also mention that in, in, in addition to Braille text, textbooks in Braille and textbooks in large print, um, PRCVI also circulates uh, learning resource kits, 3D models, um, various learning materials across the province uh, to students in the K-12 education system. And so um, we've looked at ways to uh, increase our holdings, really, with with three D printed materials. And you know, one of the one of the uses we see right now in terms of the Braille there is you know Braille labels printed right directly onto three D models, which is great because we can send uh, a Braille uh, we can we can send a, a tactile model with the Braille printed right onto it. Uh, we we can send that up to up all to all four corners of the all corners of the province, and then have it come back down in great shape. No more looking for Dymo tape labelers. Well, exactly. Well, it, it, it increases it decreases our reliance on having to relabel items mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one things are only getting better the more mainstream that technology becomes. Yeah, I, I would even think for things like mapping, where you you know you want to have a tactile representation of a map, and, mm -hmm. and you want to have braille labels on there. Um, that would be a really powerful technology as, as well. Absolutely. Because um, I know, you know, we've used a lot of tactile graphic systems in the past, such as uh, the uh, the PF, where and, and there's a number of different products that use the same process, where you um, have a specialized paper, and when you lay a carbon uh, trail down on that paper and run it through a toaster, it basically <laughs> cooks the paper, and the carbon reacts with the paper and causes it to swell up. Uh, some people call it swell touch paper. Yep. Uh, I think there's a couple of different brand names out there for it. Uh, the, the one Aroga sells is primarily the PF. Um, and those are great for uh, creating tactile diagrams. But when you go to put Braille on them, it can get kind of tricky. You've got to get the yeah. size of it right. You've yeah. got to get the uh, temperature right to have mm -hmm. it rise properly. And even then, it's not quite as distinct as it would be if you'd run something through a Braille printer. Some of those issues are still true with with 3D printing, and I'll, the the reason I say that is because you've got to get you've got to get those specifications right. You've got to get the dimensions of the Braille cell correct. And if you're designing something from scratch with software, um, that you know you really need that knowledge of what those dimensions are. Um, so have, getting good quality Braille is 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 a, is a priority. 
for, for some of our 3D printed materials. But, you know, just in terms of the value added above a traditional tactile graphic, you know, when you've got something that's 3D printed, that, that, um, using that height dimension, you can really represent things that aren't possible with traditional 3D gra graphics. Like, for example, I'm aware of one, one design, um, uh, that, that I'm curious about is one where it's, uh, it's the periodic table. And so each of the elements, of course, are represented by their, by their, um, their short form. So it's in Braille. But then the periodic table is, um, uh, the, the height of each element on the table depends on the density of the, of that element. And so the higher, the, the more the the higher a little square, little element square is is raised, the more dense the element is, and so you've got this ability to be able to show a concept that you wouldn't been able to do with traditional paper, uh, paper pieces, about pieces of uh, of uh, the paper you were mentioning before, Steve. So it's, I think three D printing is there's a lot of promise there, but I think at the same time we've also got to be really purposeful about why we're doing it, because the other thing is you know. There's many models out there of different lobes of the brain, but you know PRCVI has had uh, 3D models of the brain for 10, 20 years, and so it's it's important to find those value-added pieces. That's just my 3D printing soapbox. No, sounds good. I could 3D print a soapbox, <laughs> <laughs> and then stand on it. Stand on a literal soapbox when I deliver my soapbox speech on 3D printing. Yes. Actually, you should do that. You should you should literally do a presentation called three D three D soapbox or something. Yeah, three D printing from the soapbox. <laughs> and go out and stand on a soapbox. I, I would I would watch that. I, ironically, I'd be breaking my own rule though because I could just as easily stand on a box from anywhere. But I like the idea. Um, all right, let's talk about a couple uh, news stories really quickly before we wrap up because wow, we're long. Like I think this is the most professional show. That we've ever done. Is this setting a new standard? I, it might be. I hope not. Let's hope not. Yeah. All right. <laughs> never Maybe we'll leave that, that joke of Steve's in just to, That's right. just to lower the bar a bit. We don't wanna... <laughs> uh, so, do you guys know what June is other than really hot? I, I do because I've got it on these notes right in front of me. You cheat. I do. All I right, don't well, have my notes, so tell me. It's uh, June is Deaf Blind Awareness Month. Cool. It is, uh, when the goal of it is to celebrate Helen Keller and to raise the profile of deaf blindness in Canada as a unique disability. That actually raises a question, and this, this is one I've, I've never really been involved with, but um, when you're teaching somebody who's deaf blind Braille, mm -hmm. how, how do you start that? Yeah, it's interesting, Steve. I have worked with several students who are deaf blind in the past, but... Um, some of them have either been more kind of foundational literacy learners or they've been print users. I've never had a, a student. Uh, I, I know they're out there. Um, uh, I know they're out there. The other thing to keep in mind, though, is that most students who who we would refer to as multisensory impaired or deafblind are not totally deaf or totally blind or, or both. Um, and so there's usually some residual hearing or some residual vision that we can capitalize on in terms of working working with uh, working with these students um, but I can't speak from experience here I, I've not I've not taught Braille to a student who's deafblind yeah that, that could actually probably be a topic of a whole different show it mm -hmm. could be yeah 
oh oh there are there are some good uh, there are some great people in the in the deafblind education community who yeah. would make incredible podcast guests yeah i'm, I'm thinking we could uh, chase after linda mamer i was that. just gonna say she would, all kinds she would be great for a podcast yeah you hear that linda start running now <laughs> <laughs> steve's gonna be after steve's you with the lasso yeah. that's right write, write that down steve i, I will do write that. that down write that down <laughs> L-I-N-D-A. I've actually had two different show ideas since we started that. Uh -oh. because, uh, I think it would be really cool to bring in uh, people from the various CLVP projects around North America. We could do that remotely. Uh, using Zoom? Using Zoom, Zoom. Yeah. yeah. Oh, very and, cool. Because uh, we could bring in uh, like Rebecca Coakley from uh, West Virginia, Virginia. and uh, we could bring in Lynn from Kelowna, and uh, we could probably get um, uh, Roy McConnell from uh, Alberta. Alberta. Yeah, and just do a live podcast. Yeah, that's yeah. a great idea. Great yeah. idea. Yeah, it's like two ideas and a joke. You're going to need a nap after this. <laughs> Fortunately, he brought coffee. <laughs> the venerable Karaf. Karaf. <laughs> that's right. Uh, yes, so June is a Deaf Blindness Awareness Month. Uh, we're going to have a link to there. I guess they've got. Uh, a complete calendar of events going on all month. Uh, I think a lot of them are back east, I think in the Toronto area. Uh, but well, the the CDBA uh, British Columbia office has some events happening throughout the month. So excellent, definitely well, check those out. Okay, okay. perfect. Well, well, we'll be including a uh, a link to the to the calendar of events, and you can see what's going on in your area to help celebrate uh, June without uh, sweating to death like we are right now. It's really hot in here. You guys hot? I don't mind. That's no, no, pretty good. It's okay. You're on the hot seat. Apparently. Yeah. I'm right by the window, so that's that probably could be it. Menopause. Get it? Men? Uh, oh. <laughs> that gave us pause. <laughs> <laughs> See, now we're lowering the bar. This is much better. Now that's we're fair. back in our we're back in the quagmire that we're usually. Uh, hey, speaking of Quagmires? It's no, a, a horrible segue. That's a horrible segue. <laughs> Look, I hear JSA 14.1 upgrade has dropped. Really? That's what I hear. Yeah. Is, really? Yeah, I heard that too. That's funny. Uh, yeah, it, it has. What what exactly is JSA again, Ryan? JSA is a set of scripts that tie the JAWS screen reader and Dragon Naturally Speaking products together so that somebody who is totally blind and needs to be able to access their computer using speech can do so fantastic and this looks like this upgrade is free for uh, anybody using jaws jsa 14 yeah right right and so we'll include that in the show notes as well uh and one more little piece of software news it looks like jaws 17 uh has an update uh that's available as is this ryan is this a free app it's free for those running jaws 17 yeah Perfect. Oh, so it's, a, it's a minor update. Minor update. Minor update 217. Yeah. Excellent. I, I still find that astounding that we're all the way up to JAWS 17. 17. Oh, I know. When I first lost my site, I started with JAWS 3.2. Yeah. yeah. And, and we started with JAWS 1.0. Uh, we didn't do much with JAWS DOS. Okay. We were uh, we were telesensory dealers and had, had uh, done a lot of work with uh, screen power. Right. And uh, before that, VERT uh, for DOS. Um but uh, we got involved with JAWS as uh, Windows was starting to become a thing. We, we actually got involved with three different ones, uh, JAWS, uh, Screen Power for Windows, and 
Oh, I'm trying to remember the name of the other one. It was a locally produced one, and I'm just drawing a complete blank here. I, oh, ProTalk. It was called ProTalk. Mm-hmm. Um, but over the years, um, ProTalk couldn't keep up with the development pace that was necessary. Um, screen power couldn't keep up with the development pace that was necessary, and JAWS just leapt ahead. Right. Um, so, yeah, nice to see that they're still going and uh, up to version 17. That's right, and the shark still looks fake. <laughs> well, what, you want a realistic shark? I demand it. By, by JAWS 17, if they don't have a realistic shark, I mean, come on. JAWS 18, I'm, I'm sure JAWS 18, it's probably right at the top of their development That's, uh, priorities. Yeah. Yeah. Jump getting, right off the screen. Yeah, getting yeah. a realistic it's, shark. And last bit of news, uh, just a plug uh, about this uh, upcoming webinar that we have called The Importance of Braille, since we're talking about Braille today. Um, we here at Aroga have partnered with Braille Literacy Canada to do a little bit of an online webinar next week on Wednesday, June 15th at 11 a.m. Pacific time. And uh, anyone who's interested in, in hopping in and joining, it's free. And you can sign up on the Aroga Technologies website at www.aroga.com. And just look for the webinar graphic. It's, it's at the bottom right-hand corner of the page. Uh, or you can email ryan at aroga.com, and he will set you up. And we also need to say thanks to a few people as well for promoting our podcast. Absolutely. We, when we first started doing this, we didn't think anybody was going to listen to us. And it turns out that a few people have, and a few people are actually spreading word about it. That's right. So first off, I want to thank Larry Lewis for including us in his Flying Blind newsletter. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's actually a great newsletter if you're in the blindness community or if you have a family member in the blindness community or low vision impairment. Uh, you should really be subscribed to this newsletter because it's it's great. Uh, we're all signed up for it here, and you can sign up at www.flying-blind.com. It is a fantastic newsletter. It's probably the best newsletter out there uh, that keeps track of uh, new developments within the industry. Um, I, I've never seen one that uh, is, is as detailed and well put together. And uh, Larry is a is a good past uh, friend or present friend. He's he hasn't passed yet. Uh, although uh, with the current U.S. election cycle, he may keel over and die because it's killing him. So be gentle with Larry when you're dealing with him. He's he's a lovely man. I also want to thank the Lower Mainland Visually Impaired Facebook group and those involved with that for promoting our podcast and listening as well. Basically, I guess anybody in general who who's been listening uh, to our ramblings and. Wow, just completely. And there's Rob's arm. I, um, I think I need a nap. Maybe I need a nap. It's that hot window seat. Yeah, so it's, right. it's the uh, heat. Yeah, thanks to everybody who's been listening to our show. If you have anything you'd like us to cover on on our show, uh, things or or just want to throw in details that we may have missed, um, you can visit us on our website at www.atbanter.com. Uh, you can also email us hate mail at uh, atbanterpodcast at gmail.com. Um, it doesn't have to be hate mail. I'd just like to point that out. Uh, that's yeah, it can uh, be like mail, but we do read everything. Yeah, we do. We do. Re- re- you know, yeah, what Ryan said. <laughs> we do. We yeah. we read it all, and we try to answer where we can. Yeah, and and we should probably give a shout out to uh, Hugh, uh, who Hugh. sent us. I, I I believe our first uh, our first official. Uh, podcast email. That's right. Word up, Hugh. Yeah. Thanks, Hugh. Glad Thanks to know you. you're out there. Yeek, yeek. 
Allie also sent us an email with some suggestions as well. Yeah, Allie. So right. people are listening. And I think we should thank Adam. Yes, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank hey, you so much for having me. He's got out of the ropes. <laughs> yeah, the ropes, the duct tape, and everything. I managed to get on and off my 3D printed soapbox. It's it's good stuff. Thank you very much for including me. And if I could stand back on that 3D printed soapbox for one minute. Um, you know, when we're talking about Braille, we really just have to keep in mind that, you know, we're not to not get kind of bogged down in in the particulars of of, uh, of how it's being how it's being accessed or, or 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 what the particular details are. It's all about literacy at the end of the day. At the end of the day, it's it's all about literacy uh, and making sure that our students who are blind or visually impaired have the same opportunities for accessing uh, the literate world as our students who are typically sighted. Excellent. Agreed. Great summary. Thank you. All right. And that is going to do it for us today. Uh, I'm Rob Minot. I'm Steve Barclay. And I'm Ryan Fleury. And he's, he's also here. And I've been Adam Wilton. The and whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Aroga Technologies. Visit Aroga Technologies online at www.aroga.com. That's A-R-O-G-A.com. Music provided by bensound.com.